You guys remember in Braveheart when uh, William Wallace, he rides out, the armies are all leaving. The clans have split. They've decided we're not going to fight. They've seen the enemy. And he runs out and, they, and he says, I'm William Wallace. Say you're not William Wallace. And then he uses some very pagan terms to convince them he is William Wallace. And he rides back on his horse and he's got his face painted. And he, he looks at him and he says, run and you'll live at least a while. And dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all of the days between then and now for just one chance? Just one chance to come back here and tell our enemies that they can take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. It's got nothing to do with my sermon, but, but hopefully it got your attention, warmed up a little bit since we don't have any music. Uh, I could watch Braveheart every single day. I want to talk to you tonight about blowing out. Seems like every time you turn around, every time you turn the TV on, there's another man who has blown out his life. Just think about a couple of these people. Kevin Spacey. Kevin Spacey uh, is an unbelievable actor. Nobody's ever questioned that. He is an amazing actor. But Kevin Spacey had a few things in his life come to surface. 15 men, 15 boys accused him of sexual abuse. I don't know if you've watched the television show House of Cards, but they immediately pulled him from this uh, Emmy Award winning television show. It canceled the main, pulled the main character and kept the show going without him. He had a film that came out a month and a half ago. $126 in the opening weekend at the box office. Now, if you knew how much it cost to make that movie, you would cringe a little bit. It blew out his life, gone. Uh, uh, think about Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby, who was this American icon. He, he was such a, not just a comedic talent, uh, amazing actor, but was what was an American institution and Everything fell apart in a moment. Think about Lance Armstrong. Lance Armstrong, who was just unbelievably gifted as a cyclist, who was at the top of, 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 of a career that most of us have never even thought about being at the top of. And it opened up all of these. He was in commercials. He had all kinds of sponsorships. And then they found out that he was doping. Not only lost all of his sponsorships, I want you to think about this. His own foundation fired him. I don't know how that happens that you start a foundation and they fire you from your own foundation, but Live Strong said, we will live strong without Lance Armstrong. Tiger Woods. We could spend some time arguing this, but it's arguable that he may be the best golfer of all time. Still a, a, a pretty decent, I wouldn't say dominating, I had to find another word to go with there, but a decent force in the golf world. Lost everything. He had a model wife, beautiful children, all of these sponsorships, and in a moment, everything came crashing down. Recently, Urban Meyer, who is arguably one of the greatest football, uh, college football coaches of all time, has had his reputation destroyed. How about us? How about the church? Seems like 
Not a month that goes by that you don't hear of another pastor who's had some type of moral failure, had some type of inappropriate relationship. Bill Hybels recently. A personal friend, Frank Page. Another personal friend, Tully Chavidjan. In the last six months, three Southern Baptist Convention seminary professors all relieved of their teaching responsibilities because of inappropriate relationships. Guys, uh, it is unbelievably easy to blow out your life. In fact, the odds are probably against most of us that we won't blow out our lives. What I want to talk to you about tonight, you guys have been in this series, How to Be a Man. I want to talk to you about how to stay a godly man. Right? I, I hope that anatomically you understand how to be a man. It, it is what it is, despite what our culture might tell you. The greater question to ask is, how do I not destroy my life? How do I live the rest of my life as a godly man, not just a man? If you've got your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 12. The author of Hebrews is concerned about your life. He's concerned about your race as a godly man. He wants you to know how you can avoid blowing out your life, blowing out your faith, blowing out your calling. So if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to read two verses and we're going to walk through these two verses tonight. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have also since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The author of Hebrews is writing to a church that's struggling. They're struggling with a couple of things. They're struggling with how do we know what we believe is true? They're struggling with persecution. You read in the book of Hebrews that they are being persecuted. They're having their things taken from them. They're, they're being physically uh, beat for, for their faith. And so they're struggling with what they believe. They're struggling with the, the pressures that are happening around them. And they are threatened with blowing out spiritually in their faith. And so he's writing to them and he's calling them and he's, he's pressing them to know what they believe. In fact, the first 10 chapters of the book of Hebrews is really just a summary of the entire Old Testament. And he's constantly showing us the supremacy of Jesus compared to everything in the Old Testament. He says, Jesus is better than the prophets. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Joshua. Jesus is better than the high priest. Jesus is better than the temple. Jesus is better than the sacrificial system. He's just going through everything from their former life, everything that they knew in Judaism. And he's saying, Jesus is supremely better than all of this. And then it turns halfway through chapter 10. And everything becomes about faith. 
what we believe and how that belief drives us. This is what's different about Christianity from every other religion. Every every other religion is a system. How do I do what I need to do to get the approval of God to earn whatever it is that you're after? Whereas Christianity says, it's not about a system, it's about a person. It's about Jesus. It's not about me cleaning my life up. It's not about me reordering things in my life. It is all about what Christ has done that none of us could do. Not a single person throughout history could do what Jesus has done. Awful lot of good people, but only one holy one. So he's talking to them about faith. And what he begins to do is he works through, again, another summary of the Old Testament. Now, I love the Old Testament, so I, I could spend a lot of time in the book of Hebrews. But, but what he does is he walks through the Old Testament again. Look at chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 4. Abel, by faith. 11.5. Enoch, by faith. 11.7, Noah, by faith. 11.8, Abraham, by faith. 11.11, Sarah, by faith. 11.20, Isaac, by faith. 11.21, Jacob, by faith. 11.22, Joseph, by faith. 11.23, Moses, by faith. 11.29, all the Israelites that crossed the Red Sea, by faith. 11.30, all the Israelites that marched around Jericho, by faith. 11.31, Rahab, by faith. 11.32, What else could I talk to you about? Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets. That's a summary of the whole Old Testament. Every single one of them by faith. What he's doing is he's going back and he's saying, you you think your persecution that you're experiencing, the difficulty in life because of your faith, you, you should go back to this? That's not what you're going back to. That's not what any of them were doing. They were all walking by faith and actually experiencing the same persecution that you're experiencing. It's a history lesson. And what he's doing is he's setting all of this up because when we come to 12.1 and he says, therefore, he's pointing back to all of that because our history is full of men who haven't blown out. That's what he's saying. Because our history is full of people who have endured by faith. You can face whatever you're facing in your life. Therefore, is pointing back. And he's going to give us four things in these two verses that, that are going to help us not to blow out our lives as men. Here's number one. There's an evaluation that needs to happen. In your life, in my life, there is an evaluation that needs to happen. He opens up and he says, let us lay aside every weight or every hindrance, depending on what translation you're in. What he's getting at here, he's gonna use this metaphor of a race in this passage. He's thinking about Olympic runners. When you think about Olympic runners, they don't wear an awful lot. (laughs) It's surprising to me is the number of them that have gold chains. The same thing in the NFL. Bugs me every time when a guy has to put his necklace back in. Couldn't take that off for the game? I'd be good fans with Bill Belichick. I would correct that. He's thinking about Olympic racers. It's not a lot, and it's all spandex, right? When you watch the Olympics, they don't have a lot on, and it's because they don't want anything to restrict their movement. They don't want anything that will slow them down. 
It's this author of Hebrews is writing, he could potentially be thinking about the Olympics. In that day and time, when you ran in a race, you ran naked. I'm not encouraging that. It will get you arrested. There is counseling for that here, though, if that's your thing. They ran naked because they didn't want anything that would impede them from winning the race. Everything is a fraction of a second. If you watch the Olympics, everything, the shoes they wear, the clothing they have, they're constantly thinking about everything is shaving off a fraction of a second. What he's talking about here, John MacArthur says, it's not what the weight is, but it's what the weight does. These are not sinful things. We're not talking about sinful things. We're talking about things that are completely neutral spiritually. And yet, in your life and my life, they could be hindrances to what we've been called and created to do. And it's going to be different for every single one of us. So I'm in the unique position to be up here and get to confess to you, but you all have this. I have to limit the number of fantasy football leagues that I'm in. It is an addiction for me. I love football. My wife has to tell me on Saturdays and Sundays and now Mondays and Thursdays which games I'm allowed to watch because I'd watch all of them if I could. I love football. I, I, there is so much about football that, that is amazing. Just the illustration of life and honestly, a lot of hitting. I like the hitting. I, I watch, I would tell you my teams, but it's probably not going to make you happy here. We are in Alabama, so maybe I should just keep moving forward. I might eat crow if I had to say uh, anything about Oklahoma here. Um, <clears throat> I have to be careful. Is there anything sinful about football? Oh, it's neutral. There's nothing wrong with watching football. It is when I give it the entire day on Saturday and again on Sunday after church. There's so many things God's called me to do. So many things that God has called me to do. Football is not one of them. Didn't wire me, make me to play football. Therefore, my giving that much time to it is not honoring God with my body. Could be television. It could be the gym. It could be work. It's nothing sinful about work unless you're the first one there and the last one to leave every single day at the expense of your home, your relationships in your community, your service here at this church. Nothing sinful about it, but it might be a hindrance to what God has called you to do. What occupies your free time? It, it would be fascinating to know how much time we waste just because it would be really shameful. A 2016 New York Times study said the average American spends five hours watching TV a day. Can you believe that? I can on Saturday and Sundays, but the rest of the days, I don't think I ever see TV. Five hours a day. And here's what's interesting. The older you get, the higher that number goes up to 10 hours a day for those who are in their 60s and up. Do you know that the average American spends 11 hours online browsing the internet every day? 11 hours. That's almost half your day that you have a device in some capacity that is up and on. What's scary, I, I, I wrote for a ministry a few months back 
Do you know that millennials and Generation Z now say that they are constantly online? There is never a point where they are not connected to the internet. First thing they do in the morning, turn on their phone. Last thing they do at night, pass out with their phone on, right? Never a moment where there is not internet somewhere around them that is on and powered up. How do you use your time? Somebody is, is on there. If it's an average of 11 hours every day, if it's an average of five hours, every day, somebody's doing this. John Piper once said, one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from a lack of time. I'll keep moving. If we want to be godly men, we don't want to have blowouts in our lives. There's got to be an evaluation about our time, about our lives, about the things that are consuming. And they might not be sinful, but they might be distracting from what God has called you to do, made you to do, to know him and to make him known. Don't waste your life. Here's the second thing. There's an execution that needs to take place. There's an evaluation that you need to have. There's an execution that needs to take place. He moves from these hindrances. He says there's hindrances in our lives and there's sin in our lives. And it's not just sin. He uses this phrase that so easily ensnares, that's only used in this passage in the New Testament. There are ways that you could translate it. And I just looked at a lot of his books that translate it in a lot of different ways. But inside of that metaphor, if a hindrance would be clothing that keeps you from being as fast as possible, that weighs you down from going as far as possible, then what he's talking about right here is anything that trips you up, anything that keeps you from running. It's not something that's slowing you down. It's something that stops you from doing what you've been made to do. Richard Phillips in his commentary on Hebrews says, we take sin lightly at our own great peril. We take sin so lightly in our culture. We don't understand how offensive sin, our sin, my sin is to a holy God. We just write it off. Like it's no big deal what's happening in my life which means it so easily, isn't that sad? He says it so easily entangles us. It so easily ensnares us. Romans 6, 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. Notice he didn't say, do not let sin be tolerated. He says reign, because there's a threat that there's sin that's reigning in your body. Romans 8, 13, because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. I love Paul. He's so clear. There are things that we have to put off and there are things that we have to put on. And I think if there was anything that has been one of the most neglected phrases in the entire New Testament in the last 
30 years in the church, it would be Paul's constant reiterating of putting off and putting on. It is rare that you will hear someone preach on that. There are things in our life that we need to take off because they will kill us. And there are things that we need to put on because they will produce life in us and around us. Put it to death. Colossians 3, 5, therefore put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. You have to know the lethality of sin in order to fight the way you've been called biblically to fight the good fight. If you don't understand how cancerous sin is, you're not going to do what the Bible has called you to do and you will blow out your life at some point in time. You've been freed to say no to sin and fight. My pastor, Kyle Eidelman, just finished a series called Rise Up. It was a series to men, uh, calling men to rise up and be the men that God has called you and created you to be. And he opened that series up with an article about Anson Dorrance. Does anybody in here know who Anson Dorrance is? You do? Who is he? Yes! If I had $100, I'd give it to you right now. Soccer coach at the University of North Carolina. From 1979 to present, he has coached the women's team there. And from 1976 to 1988, he also coached the men's team at the same time. Talk about a dude. Anson Dorrance is a dude. He coached both the men's and the women's team at the same time. And, and he was interviewed in an article, and they asked him about how he created. He's won 22 titles as a soccer coach. How he has coached men and women. And they got into in this article, what's the difference in coaching men and in coaching women? And he said, I learned that in my years coaching. He said, I went in at a halftime uh, between a match between us and Wake Forest. And he said, we should have been killing them, and we were down by two goals. And he said, I went into the men's locker room, and he said, I paced back and forth. All the guys' eyes on me, and he said, I paced back and forth for two minutes. And he said, I didn't say anything. And he said, finally, I saw a trash can. And he said, I went over and I kicked the trash can and it went out the window. And he said, and I walked out of the room. And he said, we won that game. He said, I did the same thing in a women's locker room and they cried and they didn't come back out. <laughs> he said, I had to learn how to communicate with men and women. They're different in the way you communicate to them. And he said, with the men, he said, I would have to go in, I would have to take this dominating presence and I would have to get in their face and I would have to call them out. And he said, there wasn't a single man in that room who would own up to the mistakes that they'd made in the match so far. He said, when I would walk into the women's room, he said, I would walk in and he said, and I would take a knee. And he said, all eyes were on me. And he said, how do y'all think it's going? And he said, every single one of them said, it's my fault. Here's what I did wrong. And he said they would, they would own up to mistakes that they hadn't even made. He said, I would have girls saying I should have done this differently. And he said, I would have to tell them, you're not even in the match. You haven't even played yet. He said, here is the kicker. He said, I learned I could not show film to the women because it would crush them to see themselves in that mistake. But he said, if I walked into the locker room and I didn't have film of the men, they would never own up to the mistakes that they made. 
So here's the deal. If I were to ask you guys tonight, how are you doing? Everybody says, okay. If I had footage of your life and I could put it on this screen and we could all sit in here and watch it, would we all say it's okay? Sin is so dangerous and I don't know that we understand how dangerous it is. And I know that we all want to think it's somebody else's problem. But it's all of our problem. Nobody walked in on water here tonight. All of us came in sinners in need of grace, in need of a Savior. And we can lie about it and we can hide it. But what's alarming is that it is, sin is so rampant in our culture. Let's just, just the illustration of lust alone. The number of 20-year-olds who are needing to be put on erectile dysfunction medication because they have porn-induced erectile dysfunction should tell us our culture has been ravished with sexual problems. It is a huge issue in our culture. 20-year-olds who need medicine. No ladies in here, so I can take the gloves off a little bit. We have problems that don't solve themselves by us just trying to get better at it. We have sin that requires grace for it to be dealt with, and God has given us an unbelievable grace in all of the men who are sitting in this room. And you can act like you don't have a problem, but this says you do, and this is truth. This says I have a problem, and this is truth. So either we own up to the fact that we need help and we get help and we kill sin or you will blow out your life. Here's the third thing he tells us. There's an endurance that needs to define our lives. There's an endurance that needs to define our lives. He's using this, this, uh, this metaphor. He says, let us run with endurance. Or in your Bible, it may say, with perseverance, the race that lies before us. He's saying there's work to be done. We have been called to live lives of faithfulness, active faithfulness. That's not, I go to church on Sundays. That's every day I'm pursuing the Lord. I'm in his word. I'm praying to be changed. I'm in community asking God to do something in my life. It's more than just going to church. It's faithfulness. And it's hard because we live in a fallen world. I heard that fantasy football update. It's always cost men to be Christians. I hear people say sometimes, it's, such, it's so hard to be a Christian today. It's always cost men something to be faithful. Doesn't matter what generation, doesn't matter what time, it will always cost you to be a Christian. And he knows that. He's just talked to us about men who were sawn in two for being Christians, right? You go back and read the rest of Hebrews chapter 11. They were killed for being Christians. It's always going to be hard to be a Christian. Uh, one of my roommates from college, I talked to him a month ago, called me. He had had an unbelievable job offer in a medical sales company in, in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. He'd been at the same job since he had graduated from college. 
had these guys come after him, took that job, and eight months later, they fired him. And he called me to tell me what had happened. I said, well, Nate, tell me what happened. He said, they brought me in and they said, Nate, you know, you're a great guy. Sales numbers are great. You're just not cutthroat enough. And he said, I don't even know what that means. And they said, Nate, you're a really good guy and it's offensive to some of the people here. Nate is a godly man. I'd go to war with Nate. And it offended people that Nate had integrity. And they fired him for having integrity. It will cost you something to be a man. That's what we've been called to, though. The, the metaphors that the Bible uses for the Christian life, it's not a playground metaphor. It's battle. It, it's, it's a wrestling match. It's a race. It all implies it's difficult. It's strenuous. It's going to take everything you've got. And yet, for some reason, we, we, we get in our head that to be a Christian means I go to church. It's not a sprint, right? A sprint implies there are points in my life when I'm faithful. It's a marathon, which means you never stop moving towards godliness. You never stop being faithful. It's a constant in your life. We live in the day of the race, right? I feel like every time I turn around Saturdays, I'm headed to Krispy Kreme and there's all these 5Ks. They're in my way, right? Everybody's running now. And it's not just 5Ks, 10Ks. Now everybody's doing marathons. Uh, a guy I work with did a, uh, an Ironman where it's like you run 26 miles, you swim two miles, you bike however many miles. But what happened? People got crazy at some point in time. And it's not just marathons. Now it's ultra marathons. You ever heard of the ultra marathon? An ultra marathon is anything 31 miles up to the longest ultra marathon, 3,100 miles. Who in their life would run 3,100 miles unless there was a ravenous animal chasing them? I would die. There's no reason for that. So I, I've, obviously this is not my world. You can look at me and tell that's not my thing. So I Googled ultra marathon. First thing that popped up, I clicked on the link. On that link, it had a successful first ultra marathon is one where you, and then it listed three things. You know what number one was? Finish. <laughs> That's what the author of Hebrews is saying right now. You have been called to finish your life well. It's not about what you did in the past. It's about finishing well. You've been called to run the race that lies before you. Your life, what God has designed for you, the path that you're on to know him, to make him known, to glorify God and enjoy him forever, that's your calling until you die, until he transitions you from this life to that life where you do it for eternity. There is nothing else we're to be known for or, or, or about I love, do you guys know who C.T. Studd is? First of all, it's a great name, right? C.T. Studd, he is a stud. If you don't know who he is, he still holds records in, in cricket in London. As a collegiate player, I, I'm trying to remember what school he played for, they played against the Australian national team that was the world team, and a college team beat the pro team, right? You guys are a bunch of Alabama fans in here. Y'all ask for this all the time. Let us play the worst NFL team. We can beat them. Well, 
The best college team beat the best pro team. And he was the reason why. And he walked away from all of it to become a missionary. He was a missionary in China, India, and he died in Africa as a missionary. This is what C.T. Studd said. I pray that when I die, all hell will have a party to celebrate the fact that I'm no longer in the fight. That's a completely different mission, a completely different vision than most of us have for our lives. He's saying, I want to run so hard that when I die, hell celebrates the fact I'm not here anymore. I feel like most of us just trying to get by. We've been called to run with endurance. And that means something different for every single one of us in this room, to run with endurance. Now, I made this list just kind of thinking through who all God might have in this room tonight. This means something for each of us. If you're in your 20s, 18 through 20s, that means you step out on your own. That means you start becoming a man. You get a job, you go to school if that's your thing, you start taking responsibility, which doesn't sound that radical until you read the statistics on the number of 20-year-olds that live in their mom's basement. It means stepping up and becoming a man. If you're in your 30s, running your race means probably not living like you're in your 20s anymore. Can't be hanging out with your guys all night. It means building healthy relationships, thinking about the future, thinking about kids. I'm in my 30s. I got a five-year-old, a three-year-old, a one-year-old, one on the way. It means me being dad. There's an awful lot of other things that could be said about me. That needs to be the number one thing. It means thinking about your future. If you're in your 40s, it means understanding that there's a second half of your life that you need to be thinking about. Probably means joining a gym. Probably means understanding that your kids aren't going to be in your house forever. Have you done what you can to instill faith in them? You're not going to be at your job forever. Have you begun thinking about where you're going to go in that and who you're going to transition things over to? When you're in your 50s, it means helping your children to launch, to have their own lives, that you have done what you can and you're still investing, but you are helping them to launch and get out on their own. It means understanding that your wife, as you're launching, them out needs you to have a little more affection for her as that's difficult for her in that process. It, it means that at work you have begun to mentor, disciple, turn things over. It means that you are beginning to transition in several areas. In your 60s, it means that you are understanding your career doesn't go on forever. How can you hand things over well? Have you mentored men? Have you discipled men? It means that you are now thinking and pouring into the third generation in your family as you are the patriarch of that family more than likely. It means having a marriage that most of the other men who are your age probably don't have still because they've cheated and moved on to someone else. If you are in your 70s and up, it means that you understand how valuable your time is. And that's not because you have limited time. It's because you have had so much life in the time that you've had that needs to be poured out and into other men. It means that you understand because you probably don't have a nine to five, that you have insane value to the kingdom, that you can serve in a church, that you can pour into other people, that you can go and do missions that most people who have a career wish they could take the time to go do, but they can't. It means that you understand where you are in life, you understand the responsibilities that you have in life, and you pursue that with the glory of God as your goal. 
men, this is different than what you're going to hear anywhere else. Everyone else is going to tell you that you should enjoy your life. And I'm here to tell you the Bible says you should enjoy your God. It means more for your life. We need to own up to certain things in our lives. We need to have endurance. We need to have the long range in mind. And here's the last thing. Number four, there's an example that needs to be looked to. Keeping our eyes on Jesus. Or I love the phrasing, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, there's two ways when we talk about looking to Jesus that need to be clarified. So so if you remember in Numbers, when when the Israelites were being attacked by the serpents, um, God told Moses to make the bronze serpent, and if he lifted it up and they looked at it, they would be saved. And the author of Hebrews tells us, That's a picture of Christ. If we look to Christ, meaning we trust in him, believe in him, we will be saved. That's not what he's talking about here. It's very important. But what he's doing here in this passage is the other way we could take that. He's saying Jesus is our example. He's saying Jesus is our example. Jesus endured through pain and difficulty. He he uses the cross as this kind of penultimate uh, suffering and shame. So I'll never forget W.A. Criswell's last sermon talking about he was crucified naked. It was a shameful, scandalous thing. All of these people who would have heard about him, known him, seeing him there naked, hung as a criminal, it was a shameful thing. It was also a brutal thing. If you ever saw the passion, you saw probably the best depiction of what it would have been like. Bloody and painful and difficult. And what the author of Hebrews is telling us is that Jesus saw the glory. And it was was enough for him to say, not my will, but yours, Father. It was enough for him to walk through, to deal with, to be faithful to his calling. He's telling us we can look to Jesus and we can see a man who has gone through intense shame and suffering, but he's been faithful. We have an unbelievable example in Jesus to look to. We looked at him, he's the author. We we can have faith because of what he did. He provided faith for us. He's the perfecter. He's he's the one who will sustain us to the end. That that might sound like a crazy phrase in your life right now with what you're walking through, that, that he will sustain you, that the Holy Spirit has sealed you, that you are fully loved, fully forgiven, and all you will know for eternity is the affections of God. But that's what he's telling us right here. Jesus has done that for us. And he's given us an example to look to of a man. And and, and this requires real discipline. If we're going to endure, right, we're going to evaluate, we're going to exterminate, we're going to execute things that are in our lives, we're going to run with endurance, we've got this example to look to that's going to take real discipline in our lives. There are things that are going to have to be taken out of our lives. If you want to not blow up your life, there are things that you've got to deal with. 
There are evaluations that have to take place. There's an endurance that has to define you. You see the long range that just like Jesus, you see the glory of God and it is more beautiful and valuable to you than anything else. We can endure and we can live lives that are faithful without blowing out because of Jesus. I don't know if you remember the 1992 Olympics. I remember the 1992 Olympics really vividly. Um, I remember one specific event. I remember the 400-meter race. And when I finish this story, you will too. There was one guy who was supposed to win the gold medal. He was the uh, world record holder for the 400-meter race at that point in time. And in the first two trials, he crushed it. I mean, just dominated uh, by far, like the Usain Bolt of 1992. Uh, a runner named Derek Redmond who ran for Great Britain. And he came out for the semifinals, and he lined up, and when the pistol fired, he took off. And, I mean, it looked like just beauty in motion, this runner, and he's sprinting. And then out of nowhere, you see him. I mean, there's a crowd of people, and then for, for some reason, the camera focused at that exact second on him as he stops and he grabs his right hamstring. And you probably remember because he fell to the ground. Everybody keeps going and there was Derek. He, he was collapsed. He's weeping on the ground and everyone, everyone stood up. I mean, silence in this Olympic arena as all eyes are on him. And he talked about how, how he, he felt that snap that happened when his hamstring popped. I mean, he felt it, and he said, literally, I started thinking, I can't believe this is happening. I've trained for decades to be here for this moment, for this race. And he said he had one thought in his head. I don't want to have a DNF next to my name. DNF means did not finish. And you probably remember, he, he got up and he tried to keep going. He said, I thought, maybe I can, maybe I can catch up. And he tried to keep running and then he collapsed again. And he got up and he tried to hop. And there were all of these uh, doctors and all of these Olympic staff that were trying to come to him. And he kept pushing them away because he didn't want to blow out. And then out of the stands comes this guy. And he runs up behind him and he puts his hand on his back. And he puts his arm around him. And Derek looks over and he sees Jim Redman, his dad. And Jim says, let's finish this race. Life is unbelievably hard. I, I don't know what, what your life looks like. I just know how hard my life is. Life is unbelievably difficult. There are decisions as men that we have to make every single day. And a lot of times, there's a lot of money. There could be lives on the line. And it can feel like we've just blown out at some point in time. What the author of Hebrews has consistently done in this entire book is point us to how Christ, how Jesus is supreme. What the Father did for us was when we blew out, came down from the stands, he sent Christ down for us, not just to help us get across the line, but to run the race for us. We all have won the race. Christ has done it for us. He's forgiven us. We're all winners. 
Now we get to run with endurance because it's been won for us.